0: So if you were here last week, we we started talking about identity in the book of Matthew. Matthew started introducing us around the middle of chapter 2 to some kind of the main characters that we're going to be running into throughout Jesus' life. We ran into uh, King Herod. He's representing the Roman government. His job is to keep peace in the area. Jesus is a threat to him because it's his area. If you show up in someone's kingdom and you start proclaiming yourself to be king and that you're setting up a new kingdom, that kind of thing will get you killed, maybe even crucified. That's a problem for Herod. It will continue to be a problem. We're introduced to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, These are the Jewish elite, uh, the religious leaders. And uh, John the baptizer, when he's he's baptizing people, he sees them coming and had, uh, let's just say, harsh words for them. Whatever Jesus is bringing, whatever John is pointing to, these religious folk are on the other side of it. They're not pursuing God's kingdom in the way that John and Jesus are both pointing to. That will continue to be a problem, especially for Jesus, because as they continue to turn on him, uh, they start being in cahoots with, uh, with our Roman man to dispatch of the problem. We also introduce to the people, and I don't want to lose sight of these folks, so the types of people that are willing to go out into a desert area, where there's a, a, a guy wearing a camel's hair coat, baptizing people. See, that means a lot more than I think sometimes the text comes off. That's revolution imagery, where a man is saying, if you're bringing another kingdom, and these guys are saying, I might be on board with that, because we are crushed under this Roman government. And so the, to do that, though, there is risk. You have to leave your daily life. You have to not harvest your crops. You have to put yourself and your family's life in danger because of what you're potentially associated with. Keep the people in mind. There's a risk in following Jesus. There's a risk in being out in the desert. We also talked about identity and what, what about Jesus' identity was revealed in his baptism. With the language that Matthew uses, we get to see that he is, he is a king and he is establishing a kingdom. He is the Messiah, the promised one who would otherwise free the nation of Israel from the bondage that they've been in. They've been under Roman rule or Assyrian rule or Babylonian rule. He's also a leader of a new people. It is a new creation. The Holy Spirit always shows up when there's new creation. And we see a new people created that Jesus is the leader of. So this week, we move into chapter 4. And I want to caution you here because one of the, one of the dangers, in we have nice chapter and verse dissections in our Bible. It helps us study things. I use it all the time. But it's sometimes misleading because it puts breaks in where, where there may not necessarily be a good place for a break. See, when they would have read it originally, the manuscript, like it all would have been together. And so sometimes there's a story arc or a narrative that gets cut off when we hit chapters. And so what's happening here in chapter 4, see, we're still talking about identity. The question of identity doesn't stop with what Jesus' baptism reveals. That identity will now be held up for inspection. We're going to test it. And see what it really means. You see, once you establish an identity, you should expect it to be challenged. Are you really who you say you are? Can you prove the identity that you're claiming? In the scripture this week, we see Satan attempt to malign Jesus' identity and ours in the process. Let's pray and we'll dig into the scripture. Father God, I love you. I thank you for your grace, your mercy. Uh, I thank you that uh, as your people, we've been able to come together in your name to celebrate who you are, who we are in light of that. And, uh, and the freedom that comes with it. I pray today that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you. Um, give us the, uh, the energy, the clarity, and the direction to follow through with whatever that means in each of our lives. And I pray for the words, Lord, that they would be yours. In your heavenly name I pray. Amen. All right. Matthew 4. Let's, uh, let's see how Jesus is tempted. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right. So we're going to examine those temptations uh, one by one. But first, I want to catch us up with where the nation of Israel is up to this point. Uh, I promised previously that this was going to be Ben's five-minute version of the Old Testament, but I'm going to try to cut it down to two. Um, so God creates people. Satan tempts people to say, you can be like God, and he succeeds. The world is no longer how God created it. God initiates a promise through a man named Abraham and begins the work of setting the wrongs right with a people that will pursue his righteousness and justice. And he also promises them a land of their own. The promise extends from this Abraham to his grandson, Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob, whose name will change to Israel. So when we get the nation of Israel, this is coming out of this man named Israel. Israel will have 12 sons, uh, one of whom ends up in the service of the Egyptian Pharaoh. Due to a famine in the land, he uses this uh, relationship to bring this nation of Israel under the Pharaoh's control to stay on his land for protection against the famine. Eventually, the pharaohs changed and the nation of Israel has grown to be very large. And now the pharaoh is concerned. There's a large group of foreign people in his land that he does not trust. And so he takes a series of steps to oppress and subdue them. They're now basically slaves of Egypt. A man named Moses is born during this time. And God uses him to demand to the pharaoh that God's people, the nation of Israel, be set free. Pharaoh refuses and God responds with a series of plagues and demonstrations that prove he is indeed God and more powerful than all of Egypt's gods pharaoh does eventually relent and he lets the people of israel go and god leads them towards a mountain where his very presence provides moses laws that will give his nation identity if you remember from last week that's a that's a gift we see laws as a constraint because we want to live how we want to live but an identity that said you are god's people and this is how we should behave that's a gift it's an identity God continues to lead them and they grow impatient with his provision. They question whether God really will provide their needs. And maybe we should have stayed back in Egypt under the Pharaoh. As things progress, Israel eventually gets to the land that God promised, yet they're still dissatisfied with God. Give us, a, give us an earthly king. We want to be like other nations. God warns them of their foolishness, but he grants it. And it will set off a series of good kings and bad kings that lead to the nation of Israel being split amongst its tribes. They're eventually taken captive by two different empires out of the land that God promised and back into exile where they started. And this nation of Israel at the time of Jesus feels like they're in the same spot. They're under a Roman government. They are not in their promised land. That's, that's our nation of Israel in a nutshell, okay? And I bring all this up because it's the context in which the story of Jesus is written. Allusions to how God's people have responded to his promises and their place in his work is the backdrop of Jesus' arrival and his subsequent actions. All three scriptures that Jesus will use to refute Satan refer back to the nation of Israel, specifically coming from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. In Deuteronomy 6 and 8, they've reached almost to the promised land, and this Moses is standing there, and he's talking to them before they enter. And and, uh, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years prior to that point. Those years have been times of education, testing, and trial, and they were deliberately allowed by God to teach them to trust in and obey Him. Look at Deuteronomy 8.2. Moses says to them, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Like a good father, he says, I will show you how to live. I will show you how to be. And I care enough to spend that time to discipline you, to show you those things. And we see these comparisons right away, starting in chapter 4 of Matthew. It says, we had said that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, my first reaction here is kind of like, what the what? Like, who was led where by who to do what now? Because this is the King, right? The Messiah. And it seems to me like God is sending him out to be tempted by his opponent. This is the uh, lead us not into temptation God, right? But I think in the context of the nation of Israel this actually makes a lot of sense Exodus 13 the book of Exodus is is basically showing um, the journey out from under Pharaoh into the promised land and it says when Pharaoh let the people go God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines although that was near for God said lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. You see, just like the nation of Israel, God is leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He led them by by fire and by cloud, and he led that nation of Israel into the wilderness so they could be refined, to see whether they would obey before they made it to the promised land. We're seeing that in the life of Jesus as well. It continues and after, uh, in Matthew. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 40 days is an interesting number in the Old Testament. It should ring true. We, we see it, uh, the flood, uh, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. We see Moses fast. 40 days and 40 nights before he receives the law from God. There's also a 40 day, 40 day, 40 night fast for Elijah in which he was eventually uh, attended to by angels. So remember last week we talked about symbols. You got to let them peel peel like an onion. There's probably all of those things that inform some of how we're supposed to see those numbers. Okay, But I think what is probably most prominently in context here is the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that we just saw from the nation of Israel. Satan opens up with a uh, particularly interesting proposition. He says, if you are the Son of God. See, he just came from his baptism. He just came from the revolution that this is the Son. Of, this is my Son. And Satan says, okay, okay. If you are the Son of God, this is what you will do. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. we already heard this he says and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God the bread is not the sin it's not a sin to create bread from stones we've seen him do some pretty crazy stuff with bread and fish it'll happen pretty soon in the story of Matthew okay it's not creating the bread the sin is not trusting in God's provision and his timing. I feel like that's probably the linchpin for us on this one. See, we can read the Bible and say, Okay, I I know who God is, I'm gonna trust that, and I'm gonna trust He's gonna provide as He says it's gonna provide. But the thing is is we want it right now. I want your promise to be true right now. I don't wanna wait. And then if it doesn't show up when we want it to show up, we start pulling some stuff back and we say, well, you know, I, I know what it meant to give up everything to be in this kingdom that Jesus has established. But you know what? It's not really working out how I want and I'm going to start pulling that stuff back because when I'm king of my own kingdom, stuff gets done the way I want it. And I'll provide for myself. And I'll get my own food. And I'll get my own clothes. That's even a, that's even a privilege we have that some people don't. Whole nations don't. To even take it back. But we wrestle it back from God. We don't want to wait on his timing. The truth is that God is faithful here. He's always faithful here. Does Jesus get fed? You bet he does. Verse 11 shows us that soon he sends the devil away and the angels attend to him. But they did it on God's timing. There's a right way to do it. When God makes a promise, we have to trust it. It continues says, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put your Lord, excuse me, the Lord your God, to the test. Another interesting tactic by Satan. He says, well, scripture, eh? Okay, I can do scripture. I know the word of God. Deal with this. He quotes Psalm 91, starting verse 9, just so you have a little context where it's coming from. It says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Has He quoted Scripture correctly? He used the words didn't he? That's the psalm. See, it's a promise for those that have made the Lord their dwelling place that they will be protected. But it does not prescribe courting trouble. Satan has twisted scripture, just like he always does. What was it in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? Did he really say? It's a twist. You guys remember, um, if you were here, when we were going through those, um, the top 10 Bible verses, we hammered on context. Right? You got to let those verses sit In the context that they're in Because you, you don't get to just pull them out And attach them to yourself And use them for your own benefit It's the, it's the uh, I, I can do all things Through Christ Jesus who strengthens me And then you jump off a mountain And you yell that as you fall down to your death Either God is a liar or you are a fool I think you can parse that out You can't just take something out of context And make it yours you have to let it sit where it sits. Be within the story that it's in. There was a, um, there was a guy that uh, I've been kind of planning over the last couple of weeks uh, that I may talk to. It's not, a, it's not a done deal. I'm kind of waiting to see whether he agrees to it or not. Um, but, but as I was thinking through this, I was noticing the, the parallels here about, about twisting Scripture, uh, about trying to force God's hand And saying, if you are God, then you will do this. If you are God, prove it to me and you will act this way. See, sometimes we we do it in big situations too. Because that's when it feels the most necessary. But things like, if you are God and you are indeed good, then you will not let my son die. If you are God and you are indeed good, then you will heal me of this disease. Or you will stop this evil thing from happening. Or why is Satan even still around? if you are God. And this came up in the context of talking to this guy because um, he, had, he had grown up in the church and now considers himself an atheist. His son is very sick and is at uh, one of the local hospitals. And uh, the, the chaplain at the hospital, uh, trying to help, don't hear me wrong, but he says, he tells this guy, hey, this is it's part of God's plan. And the thing is, is that if I know who God is and I trust him, And that's good news. But if I don't come from that same context, that's a much different problem. Because what this man said was to the chaplain, he's like, well, you tell your God I don't want his plan. You tell him he can leave me and my son out of it for all I care about his plan. So uh, the the person that I've been talking to, like kind of told me that story and said, well, would you be willing to talk to my father? yeah, I'd like to. And then I spent the last week like what am, I? <laughs> what am I what would I say? And it was in the context of this that I was thinking, you know, here's, here's where I think I'm at. Is I think I think I'd open and I'd say, "Look, um, if there is a god, I think we can at least both agree that neither you or I are him." And so if we start there, and I say, "Well, if God were to do everything that I said, if he were to do always react in the way that I would react, Well, to be honest with you, that makes him not a God at all, because that makes him me. And I've met me. And I don't qualify as a God. So any God that agrees with me all the time automatically dismisses himself from being the Lord of all. That's the truth. So if I'm to agree that I'm not God, and this man's not God either, then rationally I'm going to have to agree to the fact that God will sometimes make decisions that I won't agree with. But they have a higher chance of being right, because I am not always right. You see, I would fully expect that there was a God, that he would do things differently than I. Twisting twisting scripture, trying to force God's hand to do what we want to do, to build our own kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's interesting to me, uh, well, Jesus responds, again from Deuteronomy 6, and he tells Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him, At Massa, this is another uh, incident in the nation of Israel. Um, Again, they're being led by this pillar of fire and the cloud and stuff. And God's providing, he's sending quail and they're like harvesting food off the top of the grass. And suddenly they find themselves where they don't have an easy source of water. And they say, did you bring us here to die of thirst? Did you forget that he led you out? Did you forget that he provided food? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and all our children and our livestock? Is the Lord among us or not? That's pretty bold that's what he's referring to it's ironic Satan that he left out what follows his quote in Psalm 91 look at Psalm 91 again it says uh, command his angels concerning you guard you in all your ways their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone but he, he left this part out you will tread on the lion and the adder the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot oh he didn't provide the whole thing because it wasn't in his best interest. It's interesting. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. My question on this one is this Satan's to offer? Are these his kingdoms to give? Has he made a false offer to Jesus? Are they his to offer? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. So Jesus confirms that Satan is indeed the ruler of this world. It's in John 12. It's in John 14. Matthew 12. Ephesians. 2 Corinthians. Revelation. He's the ruler of this world. Ah, but he's not represented his situation correctly. Their glory doesn't come along with what he owns what his influence will be and what he owns is temporary. In fact, all the things that Satan is offering Jesus, he will indeed get. But not in this way. See, this is the crux of these temptations. Satan is trying to have Jesus be a different king than what the Father sent him to be. To create and be part of a different kingdom. He is trying to have him be a ruler of a different kingdom than what God has established. He is trying to get Jesus to be a king without the cross, just bow down to me and you will have all these things and you don't have to do that suffering and that dying for these people. I'll just give it to you. That's what he's trying to do. You're going to see that exact same temptation. That's what Jesus is praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. And it's at the cross itself when the people are mocking him and saying, if you are the son of God, come off that cross. I think we also can see that the means matter here. When we look at the cross, he says Satan is offering all these things without having to die. You don't have to follow through. You can just have it. But how things are accomplished matter. The means matter. We are to be faithful in the means and God will take care of the ends. The how Jesus came to establish his kingdom is as important as the fact that it got done. You see, Jesus could have lived in any way he wanted to, and he could have died in any way he wanted to, but he did both of those in very specific ways. We talked last week about the cross. It is, it is a beautiful picture of what was done so that we may be saved, but it is not only that. It is also an ethic. It is a way to live. It is something that points us to how we live in the kingdom of God. It is a demonstration of how our kingdom fights by dying, by being persecuted for righteousness. See, the kingdom of God does not grow by force or violent means or coercion or manipulation. It grows by sacrifice. Not only God's sacrifice, but ours as members of the kingdom. It grows because God loves us more and better than anyone else. And he dies so that we may know it's true. We don't just get to call out what the ends are. And throw the means to the wind. You know, as an example, I have to think about this a lot this week too. I I greatly desire that the people of this world would obey the commands of God. I do. But the proper means to do that are to point them to Jesus. To teach them who Jesus is. And let the work of the Holy Spirit change their lives. But what do we sometimes do? We want to protest. We want to introduce laws. We want to put signs in our yards. We want to pass around snarky Facebook posts. Do you know these people that you're protesting against? I mean, like, as people. Not as a group of folks who are acting in a way that you think God doesn't like. You're generally right. We're not debating that. Okay? But do you know these people as people? Do you know them See, the phrase, hey, man, stuff isn't going all right in your life. You need some help. That's offensive. That's an insult from a stranger. It is a blessing from a friend. We've made a mistake in the means. At some point, we decided that God is primarily concerned about how people behave. And that it is our duty to fix that by things like coercion or government muscle or laws or condescension or prideful judgment. And we use scripture to do it. But we lose the context of who Jesus is. You cannot separate what comes from the mouth of the king from the king himself. It matters who the king is. We lose the context of who Jesus is in the scripture that we use. And so like Satan, we've twisted it. We've not given the full story. I do not care. I do not care. Whether the words written in that law that you're advocating for, or that billboard that you put up, or on your protest sign, or God forbid, your church sign, or on your Facebook post is true. I don't care whether the scripture is true if it is divorced from the heart of God and the proper means through which we are to further his kingdom. Sometimes as Christians, we're so concerned that the truth be out that we do not care whether people are burned in its wake. The means matter. God will direct the ends. We don't have to come to God and say, look what I've completed. Look what I've done. we faithful in the means and God will handle the ends. Are you prepared to die for the soul of those that don't act the way that the Bible directs? Because that is the direct example in the heart of Jesus. Because of who he is and how much he loves us, we should submit to his ethics, to his way of life, to his example. But we cannot accomplish God's ends with the wrong means. We are to be faithful in the means. God will handle the ends. Jesus is going to see this for the rest of his life, his earthly life. People fighting him to be a different king of a different kingdom. When he is tempted, By Satan, where he says, If you are the Son of God, make these stones into bread. Jesus says, No, I will wait on God's provision. And he is tempted when Satan asks, If you are the Son of God, make him prove his faithfulness by jumping from this temple. And Jesus says, No, he has nothing to prove. I will not test him. He is tempted to be a different king of a different kingdom when Satan says, I can make you king of all nations. And Jesus says, I will be king of all nations, but not by your hand. When Jesus tells his close followers that he must die in Jerusalem, one of his main guys, Peter rebukes him and says, surely not, Lord, you will not die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Does that sound familiar? Be gone, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are not allowing me to fulfill and be the king of the right kingdom. You're asking me to be the king of a different one. When Jesus is in a garden praying just before he's arrested, he is praying whether there is a way for this kingdom to come without the cross. That same temptation. Can it be done without this? He says, no. God the Father says, this is what it is. And Jesus says, okay, not my will, but yours. When Jesus is arrested, Peter draws a sword. A sword. But that is not how the kingdom of Jesus fights. And he says, put it away. My kingdom doesn't grow that way. And finally, after he's been... Sentenced to death and nailed to a cross, an innocent man. The crowds are standing by the cross and they're mocking him and they're spitting at him. They say, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. And in his actions, Jesus says, I am the son of God. That is why I will not. Because that's how my kingdom works. I will not be a different king. I will not establish a different kingdom. And that's King Jesus. That's our King Jesus. this is news to you and you want to learn more about Jesus let's talk about it let's talk about it there's a there's a room back there I kind of last service I kind of like it's back there it was unnecessary there's a room back there it's our prayer room um I'd love to talk with you there's some guys that'll be back there we'd love to talk with you um more about about getting to know Jesus if you if you say I've heard enough how do I join the kingdom I'd love to talk to you meet us back there um if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you find that you are pursuing his righteousness through bad means give it up give it up repent of that stuff don't don't keep going there's a lot to give up in that if you're the person that's been fighting for truth you don't want to feel like you're the person that's backing away from truth but I'm telling you it is worthless to fight for truth in the wrong means let it go fight the way Jesus fights and be part of how his kingdom progresses in that way let's pray